I turn this morning to the book of Psalms, Psalm 127, in a message that we've entitled, Except the Lord Build the House. We'll read that psalm together as we begin our message. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Today we come to the conclusion of our recent series on the Christian home. We've considered together over the past few weeks the blessing that we know is marriage. We've considered the role of the husband in the household according to the Word of God. We've considered the role of the wife in the household. And over the past two weeks, we've looked at what we called common killers of marriage, things that are destructive to a home, things that can bring a marriage to an end, things that we ought to beware of. We noted that when we see a sign that warns of danger ahead, whether it be an animal, beware of dog, or bridge out, or any sort of road sign that warns of danger, we take heed to that, and so we should read these scriptures that warn of dangers to a marriage, and we should react appropriately to that. Well, as we introduced to you last week, we wanted to conclude this series with a little time that we spend together in the 127th Psalm. And most of what we shared with you in that series was from the New Testament, namely the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 and 6, the writings of Paul. Today we turn back to the Old Testament, to a psalm that we believe was written by David, as you see in, as you see in the subheading of Psalm 127, a song of degrees for Solomon. This means that more than likely this is a psalm that was written by David, king of Israel, who wrote most of the psalms to his son Solomon. Now it's interesting that David would write this to Solomon because he had many sons, and yet we find scriptures that were written to Solomon. Solomon is the one son of David that God had raised up to be king over Israel. And so perhaps one of the thoughts that David conveys to Solomon in this psalm is the importance of relying on God in his kingship. As we see in verse 1, except the Lord build, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep, the watchman waketh but in vain. Certainly that was wisdom that Solomon needed as a king. It's wisdom that Solomon needed as a leader. Solomon was also a father. David was a father that had made many mistakes. And so as he comes to the end of his life, you might recall some of the last words of David, though my house be not so with God, yet he's made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, though he maketh it not to grow. David understood his failings as he came to the end of his life. And it's interesting to me that he writes this psalm and he addresses it to Solomon as a gift to Solomon, but also as something that God's people would be singing because psalms were hymns for hundreds upon hundreds of years, conveying to them this great wisdom that we examine today that, namely, except the Lord build our houses, we labor in vain. The psalm, as we observed, deals primarily with family. 
As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. But you can apply this wisdom that we read in Psalm 127 to a city. After all, we read in verse 1, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. And so this applies to a city, but it can also apply to a church. We live in a time of great trial upon the churches of God. We are being tried. You and I are being tried as a church right now. We live in a strange time. It's a time when tensions are high. It's a time that animosities are high. It's a time that conflict is everywhere in every way over everything. Our world has been turned upside down, and those fires try what sort of church that we have attempted to build on the foundation of Christ Jesus. Paul would address that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that the foundation of the church at Corinth was Christ, and no other foundation could be laid but that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But every man builds on that foundation. And whatever we build will be tried by the fires of this life. And if it's wood, hay, and stubble, it'll be burned up. If it's gold, silver, and precious stones, it'll be purified. And so we are indeed being tried today. Except the Lord build our church, we labor in vain that build it. The main theme of this psalm, and it's a very short psalm, despite it being a very short psalm, don't think that it'll be a very short sermon. At first, I moved the font down from 12 to 11. We ended up at 10.5. You know, when that happens, it's going to be a long day. (laughs) But the main theme of this short psalm is our reliance on God despite doing the best that we can personally do. Now, a pure fatalist might come to this passage or this thought and think that if God builds the house, there's nothing that I need to do. And there's sometimes that in church history, people have taken that approach to parenting. They've taken that approach to a nation. They've taken that approach to the church. By the way, those are the three institutions that God established in the world. A pure determinist might say, well, we don't need to do anything because God's going to do whatever he wants to do. And so we just sit back on cruise control and not attempt to raise our families or keep the city or grow the church through the preaching of the gospel. But this psalm shows both, it depicts both our personal responsibilities in our homes and our reliance on God's providence according to his sovereign will. You notice that in verse 4, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, we'll comment further on what that means in a moment, so our children of the youth, as fathers, our reactions or our responsibilities rather with our children are very detailed in Scripture, and there are many things that God holds us accountable to do. And if we leave these things undone, our children will not be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But at the same time, except the Lord build my house, I labor in vain that build it. And so we can see in our individual lives this, perhaps you might use the word synergism, between our efforts and God's blessing on our efforts. There are many things in the Word of God that are this way. We read in the book of Proverbs that the hand of the diligent maketh rich. In other words, hard work leads to prosperity in your life. If you're wondering what the secret is to prosperity, it's hard work. 
And so you have that contrasted many times with the sluggard who won't plow by reason of cold, and so he has no harvest and he becomes hungry. We also read in the Proverbs that the blessing of the Lord, it makes rich. He adds no sorrow to it. And so we rely on God, we work as hard as we can, and then we trust in Him to make it to work, to give us the blessing, to give grace to overcome our failings, and to give us this desired result that we want in our own homes, in our cities, and in our church. I think a good example of this as far as church growth would be the book of Acts chapter 2. That chapter ends with the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. But it's only after the church continued in the apostles' doctrine and in breaking of bread and in prayers and they fellowshiped from house to house, they met every single day of the week, and it is after that that the Lord adds to the church daily. And so God expects us to do things, and then God, in His providence, as the God of the harvest, blesses our efforts, and we are beggars at His table. As we begin this, we've already read it for you. We look at verse 1, "...except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain." Now this verse is sobering. Because it communicates to us that despite our best efforts as fathers, as pastors, as leaders, as community members, despite our best effort, we depend on the Lord. Now, there are some times that, and and I've talked with parents who feel this way about their own parenting. They look back on their lives and they really believe that they have everything figured out. Now, by the way, the moment that you feel that way as a dad is usually the moment before everything blows up in your face. Have you experienced that? If I believe I have it all figured out, that's usually the moment right before the car steers off into a ditch. I don't have it all figured out. I heard a preacher one time make the comment in a sermon that, When he was a young preacher, he set out and wrote all of these articles on how to pastor churches and how to raise children. And looking back on all of that now as a seasoned pastor of several decades and a father of adult children, he could laugh at himself, perhaps even be offended at himself, rip the articles up and throw them away. Nothing's more annoying as a pastor who's been one for a decade and a half than to hear someone who is just ordained, who's never pastored a church, lecture older ministers about how they ought to do their job. And that has happened. Sometimes it happens. As parents, we many times like to do what we call the 10-step programs where you have this step, that step, this step, that step, and then you get to the end of the 10th step and you... You've got children that do exactly what you say, who are guaranteed for success, and any of us who've been doing this for a great period of time knows that that's simply not how it works. It's not how it works at all. And I come to that conclusion with more than two decades of trying to parent children. I told Rachel a couple of years ago, I did the math, and I realized that we had been raising at least one toddler in the home for at that point, I believe 16 or 17 years, and if I did the math, we would have at least one teenager in the home for the next 15 to 20 years. And so 
when you come and look at me and I look old and stressed and I don't sleep, now you know the reason why. We don't have it figured out. And there isn't a simple 10-step program for success in your homes. As Americans, we love the 10-step programs. Those sermon series are very popular. Those seminars are well attended, and those books are always bestsellers. But life is far more complicated than that. And so as we jolt us this morning in a 10-step society, we begin by saying that even... Amidst our best efforts, we stand as beggars at God's table, dependent on his mercy to have anything that resembles something close to a success in raising our children. Notice, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Laboring in vain equates to something that is pointless or fruitless. We often use the word vain or vanity to have reference to looking at ourselves in the mirror. After all, the bathroom, we just finished a project because we're all stuck at home. And when you're stuck at home and you can't go anywhere else, you see the things you don't like about your house and you renovate. At least that's what happens around our place. And we installed a new vanity in one of our bathrooms. Why is it called a vanity? Because it's there every morning where you look in the mirror and you look at yourself and you make yourself look better or you try And you fix your hair and you brush your teeth and you floss and you use mouthwash and you put on makeup. You know, you sisters, sometimes people ask, your primitive Baptist, does that mean you can't wear makeup? No, please wear makeup. And the sad thing about us brothers is that if we have ugly on the face, there's really nothing we can do about it. We can't wear makeup. At least it's not okay to wear makeup, right? We still can't wear makeup in America, right men? Is, is, it still, is it still that type of America where men don't wear makeup? If we're ugly, we're just ugly. But we look in the vanity and we try to make ourselves look better. We look and we stare and we look and we stare and we do everything that we can to look presentable before we go out into the world. I won't ask how many minutes you sisters spent looking in the mirror today, but what is that mirror called? It's called a vanity. That section of your home is called the vanity. But vain here doesn't mean egotistical or arrogant, and it doesn't mean vanity in the sense of I'm trying to look the best that I can because I'm a vain person. Vanity here, in vain here, means pointless. If we have in this world only hope in Christ, our faith is what, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15? Our faith is vain. That means if Jesus wasn't who he said he was and our hope in him ends the moment we die, then everything that we do as a church and as a body of people is pointless and fruitless. It's in vain. There's no point in it. There's no sense in it. You might as well eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. When Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes that all is vanity and vexation of spirit, he doesn't mean all is egotistical. He means that Every purpose in the world, with the exception of serving God, comes to an unfruitful, unprofitable end. If your life's goal is to accumulate wealth, you die with the accumulated wealth and you leave it to someone else who might spend it like a fool. It's one of the things that Solomon laments. If your agenda is health, your body will wax old, as does the garment. 
the kids tricked me this past week into running with them at the park and racing with them. And yesterday, I felt like I was 80 because my legs hurt so bad. I don't run unless something's chasing me. So if you see me jogging, you know, whatever it was, it must have been big because he's trying to get away from it. I don't run, and the pain in my legs continued until when I got up today. Our bodies wax old, we do the best that we can, and then eventually we go back into the grave, the dust from which we were taken. We get older. Everything in this world, aside from the service of God, then, is what? It's vanity. Except Christ build our houses. We labor, but in vain. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. The watchman is a person who stands on a wall and watches for invading militaries. He would see the military coming. He would blow the trumpet and sound the alarm. It would wake everyone in the city. And unless God was with them, particularly in this city, what city is it? It's Jerusalem. David is writing this as the king of Israel in his palace in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. The watchman waketh but in vain unless God is protecting them. That was the story of the nation of Israel. You remember that God promised to always be with them and protect them and defend them and enable them to defeat their enemies. And so many times, because of their lack of faith and disobedience, they would be invaded and they would fall, or they would reject God's command and go out to battle under their own might and be defeated. That happened over and over in their history. They were attacked, they engaged in warfare, but because God was not with them, everything that they did was what? In vain. Their efforts were in vain. As we think about laboring in vain and being something that's pointless and fruitless, whether or not this passage is comforting to you will depend on your perspective, your view your understanding of the nature of God. If you view God as your Savior who loves you and cares for you and protects you and provides for you, your reaction to this passage is going to be one of peace. And that is the intent of this psalm. As we read in verse 2, it's vain for you, it's pointless, to rise up early, to sit up late, and to eat the bread of sorrows, for he giveth his beloved sleep. The intended effect of this psalm is to give you peace in your mind as you attempt to raise your children or pastor a church or keep a city. If our perspective of God is that He is harsh and cruel and desires to hurt us somehow for His own glory, then as we read this, we might be terrified. If our perspective on God is that he's powerless to intervene in our own lives. Perhaps the idea of the deist, that God created the world and he sets it into motion and he withdraws himself into heaven and he doesn't have any agenda in the world or power to affect things in reality. And this verse is not going to have much weight in our lives, but if we understand that God loves you with an everlasting love and that your children are his heritage, it gives you all the peace in the world. As we think about God building the house, whether the Lord builds the house greatly depends on whether we do our part in building in the Lord. 
Remember, pure fatalistic determinism is not the message of Scripture. We're not robots, nor are we to simply cease from functioning and to merely exist, treading water, bobbing as a cork in the water, waiting for Christ to come back, trusting in Him to do everything we are to do. You think about it this way. God provides for you through enabling you to get a job, giving you strength and health to work, and blessing you through those means. He doesn't simply, as so many charlatans say on the TV and the radio, you know, if you send them a check, all of a sudden, miraculously, out of nowhere, your checking account had $5,000 more in it. Wouldn't that be something? They sit in Congress, you know. So God provides through the means of blessing you to do what he's commanded you to do. He's commanded us to work hard by the sweat of our face, we'll eat our bread. But he provides seed time and harvest. He provides the opportunities. He gives the strength to work. And as the God of the harvest, he blesses it to come to fruition. We are blessed for our houses to be built by the Lord when we attempt to build in our house in the Lord. And so we have to keep that biblical balance and perspective that we build in the Lord and the Lord blesses it to stay and to be built. That is to say, we operate in accordance with the scriptures as we have discussed in recent weeks. We'll consider a couple of passages today again that we've looked at recently about the role of a father in the home. But the father and the mother are to teach their children and train their children and bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that what? They labor in vain that build it. We are to build, we are to labor And it is God that builds the house. I just had come to mind a passage from the book of Philippians that's in a different context on a different subject, but it is the Lord which worketh in you. He works in you husbands and mothers, grandparents, to build and to teach and to train. And as we build in him, he blesses us to build I pray that our homes are in such a case, in such a shape, that God is there working in our homes, that he's building in them, that he's working. Now, there's a caveat that I want to give you. As we talk about building in our homes, again, this isn't 10 steps to a successful adult. That child that you're raising, what is that child? Well, they're an innocent little bundle of clay that got brought into the world with a neutral spirit, and it's your job to shape and mold and steer. Is that what Scripture says about babies? It says we are conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity. Guess what a baby is? It's a little bitty sinner. Guess what you are? A big sinner. That started as a little bitty sinner and grew and grew and now you're a big sinner. You and I can do our best effort, but that little person that we're trying to raise up and train and teach is a sinner just like we are. 
And so, so many times the son will go prodigal despite the best efforts of the father because that person is also a sinner. Have you ever seen even a good, great man fall into sin? If there's one example, if there's one lesson of the Old Testament for us to know, it's that good men can fall when they let their guard down. Think about David, the writer of this psalm, as he sinned with Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Can you see the irony of this passage in that the man who sinned with the mother of the person he's writing to is writing this psalm about God building the house. You see, we learn also through failure, which is one of the things that we're going to talk about as we talk about straightening the arrow. Failure teaches us. Failure is a teacher. We learn from failure as a husband, as a son, as a father, as a wife, as a daughter, as a mother. We all learn from failure. Everyone that's ever succeeded at anything tried it infinitely before they succeeded, and they failed so many times. You think about the in, some of the inventions that we use every day, all of the false, failing variations of those that were brought into being before the light bulb or the television or the telephone. Think about all the experiments that went wrong. But we are raising little sinners. If the Lord blesses us with children, and at minimum, if you're thinking, I don't have children, but I'm, I'm married, how can this passage apply to me? You still have a house. And we've made this point in every sermon. You do not start a family the moment you have a child. You start a family the moment you come together as husband and wife. And you still have a home to build. Husbands, you still have the responsibility to pray with your wife and for your wife and talk about Scripture and read passages together. That's still our responsibility if there's never a child who comes onto the scene. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. It is vain, verse 2, for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Now this passage deals with anxiety. If I were to ask for a show of hands over how many of you here deal with any sort of anxiety, I would imagine that many, or not all, if not all of us, this year would raise our hands. We, we started off this year, it's 2020, it's the year of perfect vision. Did you not hear so many dorky, annoying cliches about that in January? And then February comes along and it's, I'm hearing something about some virus over on the other side of the world. And then March comes around and all of a sudden, oh, it's here. And then April, we're all hiding in our homes and not knowing what's going on. And in May, we'd all resorted to fighting each other about what really was or was not happening. And, you know, here we are in the middle of September, nearing the end of September and what a journey we've taken together this year. You look back in retrospect, we've, we've had earthquakes and hurricanes and a million acres out west burning and a pandemic and violence in the streets. And oh, on top of all of that, it's an election year, which a lot of folks in this country really take seriously. Think about all the causes of anxiety in the world. The psalmist's intent here is not to lecture us on a proper sleeping schedule. It is vain for you to rise up early. I like that part. I don't like waking up early. <laughs> to sit up late, well, there I, there I went, because I can sit up till 1 in the morning and 
still be totally awake when I go to bed. It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late. What's his point? Read the next statement. To eat the bread of sorrows. In other words, to be so filled with anxiety over your home, over your marriage, over the city that might be attacked by an enemy, over the church because it belongs to Christ. It is vain, pointless, and fruitless for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Now, it's interesting that he uses for anxiety and worry the metaphor of bread, bread of sorrows. By that you can infer that anxiety, as it grows in you, is the product of you eating the cause of the worry. In other words, you eat the bread of sorrows. You have sorrow here on a plate, and as you think about it, more and more, you eat the bread, and your stomach is filled with the sorrow. Do we not feel the anxiety so many times in our stomach? This is why a common expression in the Old Testament and in the, even in the New Testament in Paul's writings, as it relates to love and care, they would describe it bowels of mercy. Bowels of mercy? What does that mean to a Jew in the first century? You'd love someone so much that it would be from the very core of your being. We've all experienced what we might refer to as butterflies in our stomachs. Your emotions sometimes have a physiological response. You feel, you feel so many times the emotions that you experience in your core. And that's what this metaphor discusses. But he's talking about anxiety and sleepless nights. Have you ever woken up at two in the morning worrying about something? It's like a, a few years ago when we were going through some, some issues. It was like clockwork. I didn't need an alarm. 2 o'clock, 2.30, the eyes were awake, and there I would lay in the bed looking at the ceiling, sometimes until the sun would come up. We've all been there, and it seems almost impossible to control. And as you lay there in the middle of the night looking at the ceiling in the dark as everyone else in the home is asleep, all you do is think about it, and that is to do what? To eat the bread of sorrows. You're ingesting it. As you think about it, you ingest the sorrows. It is pointless. It is vain. It accomplishes nothing. It profits nothing. These would be teachings reiterated by the Lord Jesus in his ministry. Which one of you, by taking thought, can add a cubit to his stature? I'd love to add maybe five inches. I'm not greedy. To my height. About three inches to the breadth of my shoulders. I can't think myself into being as tall as Brother Matthew or Brother Ethan. I cannot worry away my problems. Now, look back at verse 1 and see the peace in this passage. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And so because God we trust is building the house because God is God, because He is who He is, because He's your Savior, because He's your shepherd, because He's your friend. Scripture even describes Him as our husband, as we have considered in this series it is vain to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Sleep is a blessing given of God, especially sleep in the midst 
of a tempestuous situation. We've got a couple of newborn babies in the congregation today. So when we say sleep is a blessing of God, there might be a couple who would amen that very heartily. Been there. I got well equipped with every TV show that comes on at 4 or 5 a.m. with one of them. I forget which one it was. It may have been Micah or Annabelle, but we would take turns feeding them and you'd watch old black and white movies that time of day. That's about the only time they play. He gives his beloved sleep. Sleep is a blessing, particularly when you have something that could cause you anxiety, such as raising a family. Number one, as we've expressed, there's no benefit in laying in bed awake, worrying. And number two, trusting in God gives us great peace so that we can function without such anxiety. I want to share with you a couple of passages from the New Testament briefly before moving along with the next portion of this psalm. Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing. Now, we use the word careful today to mean cautious. If I say to my kids, let's say they're going to go ride their bicycles around the neighborhood, I say, be careful. And as a part of being careful, and this drives them crazy, they despise it, they hate it, and I really don't care, they have to wear helmets. Why? Because I want their little noggins and the brain inside that little noggin, despite being hard-headed winslets, to be protected in case they wreck. And so we do that because we want to be careful. Caution is a good thing. Today we are obeying the state guidelines on social distancing and such during the midst of this issue we have right now because we're being cautious. Scripture commends caution, but Scripture does not commend anxiety and worry, and there is a difference. What is it then to have a lack of caution, scripturally speaking? It is to be reckless... And to be reckless is to tempt the Lord. Remember, Satan takes Jesus up on the pinnacle of the temple in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4 and said, Cast yourself down. His angels have been given charge over you lest you dash your feet against a stone. And what is it that Jesus said in reply to that wicked one? Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I've made light of that. Every time I get on a roller coaster, right about the time we get up to the very top of it, I think, Lord, get me off this thing. And then I have the thought, I didn't put you on that thing. You got up there on your own. I hate those things, but my wife loves them. And I was so happy when we went to Six Flags and Ethan was getting a panic attack about getting on Goliath. So we waited in line and I'm like, look, he and I, he's not liking this. We're just going to go. And then we both go and she rides it. And we're just like, I want to get on that thing like 200 feet in the air and you go straight down. Why would you want to do that? It's like jumping out of planes or something. Why? What's wrong with the ground? Not into adrenaline that much. That would be to tempt the Lord. We don't want to tempt the Lord. We want to be cautious. We want to be careful in our words, but we don't want to be careful in the sense of Philippians 4. Be careful for nothing. Careful simply means full of care, and care in that day means worry. Be full of worry for nothing. Don't be full of worry. But instead... 
In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Instead of worrying about the problems, and Lord knows when you're raising children, there are plenty of things to cause you worry, especially when they start driving or they have friends that start driving. Or when some other person that likes them comes sniffing around the house. Hey, get out of here, dude. Plenty of reasons to worry. Instead of worrying, let your supplications, your prayers, be made with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made unto God. Use that energy that you would have spent worrying and that mental process, invest that in praying to God. So if you wake up at 3 a.m. and you're worried about your kids or you're worried about the economy or you're worried about the election or you're worried about the virus or the response to the virus, rather than being filled with anxiety, begin by praying. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And pray, and pray, and pray. You might find that you end up back asleep, nodding off in the middle of your petitions to the Lord. And you know what? That's okay. It used to make me experience guilt if I fell asleep praying to the Lord before I would go to bed at night. I woke up the next day, I didn't finish my prayer. But you know what? What better of a way to fall asleep than speaking to God? The last thought before you went to bed that night was on the Lord and to the Lord. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The book of 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. God cares for you. He loves you. And so it's vain to lie awake at night worrying about your children, your family, your home, your business, your country, your city, or even the church. Commit that energy and that emotion and that investment to prayer. Now, verse 3, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. The first part of that passage, children are a heritage of the Lord. Spellcheck didn't like that, and heritage on my on my notes, we might be inclined to say a heritage of the Lord, and heritage of the Lord is the way they worded it here. Children are heritage of the Lord in two ways. Number one, when God blesses you with children, God has blessed you with heritage. He has blessed you with a furtherance of your name in the world. Now, if you are one who cannot or has trouble conceiving, might I just tell you that you are among some of the most blessed characters in all of the scriptures. You think about Hannah who prayed and wept and prayed and wept because she couldn't have a child and God finally heard those petitions and gave her who? Gave her Samuel. Or think about the mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, who was very old when God blessed her to have children. Think about Sarah who was... An aged, aged woman, even beyond the age where she could have children. And when she heard about that, what did she do? When God says, you're going to have a child. Sarah, you're going to have a child. 
Oh, she laughed. Shall I have pleasure when I am old? Were her verbatim words. Some of the most blessed women in all of Scripture were unable to have a child. You know that God is in the business of overruling our own infirmities to His glory. And so that was the case with so many. We have Scripture in Isaiah that are written to people that are eunuchs who were unable to have children because they were taken in war and they were treated in such a way to where they could not have children. And God gives encouragement to them. The encouragement there was that they have a name in Israel. If you're unable to have a child or you're someone who's single or widowed, understand in the house of God... You have children in Israel. If you don't have a good relationship with your parent, you have fathers and mothers in Israel. I have people in this church I am closer to than my own grandparents, some of them. My children from birth have referred to Hewlin Chambers as Paul Paul Hewlin. One day they're going to figure out he's not actually their biological grandfather. They may just have learned that. I don't know. You have mothers and daughters and fathers and sons in Israel. God gives you that blessing in the church. This organization, this family, is to us what a natural family can be, and so many times so much more, because in Jesus' day, he warns that in the persecution that would befall his early disciples, father and mother would turn their own children into the Roman government and have them arrested for their faith in Christ. They had a closer relationship to people in the church than they did their own families. But children are a heritage for you. Think about it in another way. Children are the heritage of the Lord, of Him. God sends His children into this world as He blesses you to have His children. What a blessing it is when we worship together with our children and we watch them first begin to sing praises unto Christ and to call upon His name and to worship Him and serve Him and love Him. What has happened? He has sent one of his children into this world through you. Now, they didn't exist before this world began. Let me be very clear about that. But that is his child. And he has quickened them. He loves them. He has called one of yours as his own, as it were. We come to the meat of the text and. Verses 4 and 5, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Now, this is an interesting passage, and it compares the raising of children to the creation of an arrow. Now, I probably read more than you care to hear about how arrows would be made in that day out of wood and stone and perhaps bone and feathers and the sinew of an animal, the tendon or ligament of an animal would be used to connect the feathers to the shaft of the arrow. They would take a sapling and cut it down and strip off the bark carefully with a knife. They would put oil all over it and hold it over the fire and they would shape it 
They'd take a bone or a rock and they would bang it against rock until it had the desired shape, certain types of rock or bone. As technology began to progress, they would use metal for the broad head, the tip of the arrow. But it was a lengthy process. It was a time-consuming process. There was skill. There was investment. One might even notice that a person's first arrow was a little more trial and error than perhaps his fifth or sixth arrow that he ever created. You get better at doing something as you go along, like a painting. You get better at painting every time you produce one. If you're refinishing a car, you feel sorry for the first person that you'd ever worked on a car for. As you do something, get better at it. Get better at it. Children are compared to an arrow in the hand of a mighty man. Now what this psalmist's intent is, is to convey that we are to, in a sense, straighten out a child. You know, folly is bound in the heart of a child and the rod and reproof drives it from him. We straighten him out. We equip him to fly straight and to effectively strike a target. As arrows in the hands of a mighty man, not only does he create the arrow, he prepares the arrowhead, he straightens out and prepares the, the shaft, the stick, he takes the feathers and he connects them with a tendon, an animal tendon to the, the arrow itself. He aims it. He directs it. That means that he's got a target in mind, doesn't he? Now, we had a little event last, I guess it was two weeks ago, where we have arrows and we have a few bows and probably, I guess, four bows in the house. And one of the kids was outside and they were running around with the arrow on the string. And I'm like, get that arrow off the string. Well, I didn't pull it back. doesn't matter. Get the arrow off the string. Actually, two children did this. So, you know, both of you kind of have the guilty face. Um, don't put the arrow on the string. Why? Because if you bounce a certain way, that thing could have enough force behind it that it's going to launch off and stab one of your siblings in the leg which we generally try to avoid in our household, stabbing or shooting the other siblings in the household. Some of you parents who come from very docile households, praise God for that. Uh, our kids are a little more wild. We come from a very wild stock and, you know, barefoot outside, we're going around with bows and arrows when other little kids are playing with dolls. That's just how we roll. We don't run from bugs, we pick them up, play with them. And there was a a couple of days this past week where they had to get hose piped off before they were allowed to enter into the house because they were taking dust from all the dry, you know, that we, we've got a very dry atmosphere and throwing it in the air like smoke and letting it land on them. And I endorse that, by the way. Children need to get dirty and play outside. Outside running around with a bow and arrow. Well, let me just shoot it over there. I'm like, you don't have a target. You're going to shoot through the tree and hit the neighbor's house. What are you doing? Nobody needs to just pull back and haphazardly let go of that arrow and sling it, hurl it across a yard. You might hit a dog. You might hit the neighbor. You might hit their pet. You might hit their house. We had a neighbor behind us, diagonal to us, and the kid was on the archery team at school. I came outside one day, and there was an arrow sticking out of my chimney. I was not a happy camper. Never mentioned it to him. I was saving it. You know, you have those things that you just save in case you need it. 
and save the arrow in the chimney in case I ever need it. There was a time that he was shooting and he had his target between the pool where my kids were playing and where he was standing. And I walk out, I'm like, hey, stop. And he looked at me like, like you're going to shoot my kids. You aim the arrow at the target. Penelope's like, hey, Paul, Paul, what are you doing? You're getting loud. You aim at the target and you shoot at the target. As parents, we have a target in mind with our kids. A goal for them when they get old. I give you a few scriptures. You can write them down. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Colossians 3, 21 says the same thing, but it says to provoke them not to wrath, lest they be discouraged. And then Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6 I'm going to share that one with you, Proverbs 22 and verse 6. As a general principle, there are always exceptions to these Proverbs, as we often speak about. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Elder Ronald Lawrence said one time in a sermon that I heard, you train children, you raise pigs. Train up a child in the way that he will go. It takes training. In other words, you don't just put them in a room and they grow and you feed them and they grow and you feed them and they grow. That's how you deal with livestock. But you train children. Train children. Now there are two, and I know that we have eight minutes left and are a lot of time for the message today. We have two areas of training for young folks that we want to share with you today. First of all, in this physical, temporal world in which we live, It is our responsibility to raise them, to train them in such a way that they will be responsible adults. I've known parents that make the four-year-old doing exactly what the four-year-old needs to do at the time the goal. But we have to remember that the goal is at 18. The goal is at 20. And I believe that to raise children who are adults that know how to function at 18 requires even some mistakes to be permitted to be made. They need to fall off the monkey bars. They need to skin their knee. They need to do things that blow up in their face to train them that life has consequences. The Christian fad of, I suppose, the the 90s and the 2000s was to do what we call helicopter parenting. What does helicopter parenting mean? Well, you mom and dad are in a helicopter and you fly around over them everywhere they go and you micromanage everything they do. And the problem with that is, yeah, it might look nice when they're sitting there with their hair combed and their shoes on and their shirt tucked in when they're eight. But because I hovered over them their whole life, they get to 18 and they don't even know how to function. No, I need to raise them in such a way that they're allowed to make enough mistakes that they break a bone or... They fall off the monkey bars, they skin their knee, they put scuffs on their elbows so they know that there are consequences to their actions and they understand the concept of risk and reward. We have to find the balance between control and exploration, you might call it. They should have the ability to explore. I read a book years ago by Dr. Meg Meeker, Boys Should Be Boys. If you have boys, I recommend that book. If you have girls, I recommend that book. 
I knew a couple one time that when their little boy was running in the grass, they said, don't run, you might fall. And I'm over there like, climb a tree, fall. Helicopter parenting doesn't work. If you have a child with a backbone, all it does is prime someone to run away and get as far away from you as they can when they have the freedom to do so. Meg Meeker begins that book by talking about a group of boys that would go off into the woods and they build a fort and one of them fell out of it and broke his arm and it was the best thing that could have happened to him because it taught him some things about life, risk and reward. I don't like the safe playgrounds. I don't want my kids to fall out of a playground built in 1970 and break their neck. But at the same time, it's good to climb a tree. It's good to get dirty. It's good to pick up slugs and bugs and get stung by bees unless you're allergic, in which case don't get stung by bees. But it's good to experience life in that way because that's the way you train to be an adult. It's our responsibility to discipline our children. And again, this is to teach them to be a responsible adult. Proverbs 13.24 says, He that spareth the rod hateth his child. If I don't discipline them, I am hating them. Not in terms of emotion, but in terms of my treatment of them. Because a child needs discipline. They need boundaries and they need consequences for their actions. Along those lines, I'll tell you that there are many forms of discipline. The word rod is used with, God's, with reference to God's correction of us. And yet God has never come down from heaven with a physical stick and smacked me with it in the backside. Has he you? And yet I've been under the rod of God many times. It might be grounding. James Dobson wrote a couple of books along these lines that I would also commend to you, Dare to Discipline, but the one that we read was The Strong-Willed Child. It's a great book, and I commend it to you. There are many forms of discipline. It could be grounding. It could be spanking them without anger because abuse is never, never acceptable as discipline. I've learned with older kids the taking of privileges is a very effective form of chastening. We all have these little devices in our pockets today called smartphones, and I promise you people who are, well, even me, anyone and everyone that has one of those today looks at that smartphone and they think that if that is taken away from me, I will die in 20 minutes. Someone's going to message me, I'm going to miss the message, and I am just going to spontaneously combust the world as we know it will end. What if so-and-so messaged me? You and they will both survive. Those little devices, you take them away and all of a sudden everyone's attitude in the house becomes a whole lot better. After they sulk and get mad at you for a few minutes, and that's okay. You know what happens when they sulk and get mad? They just go, go to your room. I don't even have to have the last word sometimes. Go to your room. I'm not listening to it. Because sometimes if you have the child that always wants the last word, which was me, by the way, and you send them away and you say, I don't care what you say, just go to your room, and then they have to sit up there and there's no one to get the last word with, you'd be amazed how that works. There are many forms of discipline. Grounding taking privileges, what works for the child is what we ought to be doing. The important part is that there's discipline. Some children spanking does not work with. Uh, we had one child who will remain nameless, my oldest daughter. 
I could have spanked her at three till my hand was blue and numb, and she would have still been fighting me. Dad said, you just keep whittling that child and working with that child. She's going to have a backbone that will never bend when she's an adult. She doesn't have a spirit made of clay. She's got a spirit made of stone. And you, James Dobson put it this way, you can mold a clay figurine really easily, but then you can break it equally easily. You take a statue carved out of stone and it's really hard to destroy. You've got all these statues in ancient Greece that last until today because they're made out of stone. You chip away at it, it's a lot harder. He makes a point in strong-willed child that strong-willed children are a great blessing. You say, yeah, right. Well, they are because you can mold them into such an adult. Do you think George Washington was a pushover? You think Benjamin Franklin was a strong-willed child? Thomas Jefferson? James Madison, these men had iron wills. Strong-willed people are a blessing to society when they're pointed at the right target. So parents, we keep it up. We epitomize what a man or a woman is to be. They're always watching you. They become little versions of you. We teach them how to save and to spend their money wisely. We teach them their civic duty to be informed, to vote, to pray, to give honor unto people. We teach them to be respectful human beings. And secondly, as parents, we teach them the scriptures. We teach them a respect for God's house. I feel compelled to speak more on this subject next week. And so we'll continue this beginning in verses beginning with verse 4 in next week's message. The psalmist concludes this by saying, Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. Happy is the man that has his quiver full. Might I leave this thought on your ear today? There was a movement years ago in Christianity that ended up being scandalized and discredited, and it was a great shame, the quiver full movement. The leaders of that movement were abusive megalomaniac-type men who brought great shame upon what they taught and themselves personally. But they had some truth to what they taught. Having a family is something that makes us happy. America today teaches you you don't need to get married. You worry about education, then you worry about job, then you get your dream home. Oh, sure, live with two or three people along the way. And then finally, one day, eventually get married. And then maybe by the time you're 30 or 35, then start thinking about children. Might I suggest that that is not the way God designed us to function? I promise you it's easier at 20 than it is at 35 to carry a baby. I don't know that from firsthand experience, but I, I might have seen a thing or two along those lines. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. Should God bless with children, they are a blessing. And in my mind, the more the merrier. We'll conclude our series on this subject, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your great blessings. We thank you, Lord, for our 
homes. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing that is marriage and the blessing of bringing children into the world. We ask, Father, that you forgive us of our many sins. We pray, Lord, that you keep the house lest we labor in vain that build it. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, for caring for us, for providing for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.